Hello, and welcome to Modus Scotus, the podcast about anything and everything having to do with the Supreme Court. I'm Bill Kehoe. And I'm Venetia Hurtabies. And today we've got a fun one for you. We're going to be discussing a recent uh, oral argument, Greer versus the U.S., and then we'll talk about a recent opinion that was released, Florida versus Georgia, mm-hmm. the Florida-Georgia line. But yeah. first, we're going to talk a little bit about the news. So, I think it's been on everybody's mind, the Derek Chauvin case. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Right? I think everybody's been watching it. The whole nation's been seeing what happened. And you saw he was guilty on three counts, right? Mm-hmm. Do you remember what those three counts were? No, I did not follow it, unfortunately. You didn't. Are you even American? I, I know. I'm like one of those people who waits until after the fact and then reviews the whole thing. Like, I watch those true crime to- documentaries all the time, but I, this is like a real life version of it, and I didn't know. You're going to wait till the Netflix thing comes out? <laughs> Probably. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I've been busy. Yeah. 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 Okay. So Derek Chauvin was convicted of second degree unintentional murder, third degree murder, and second degree manslaughter. Okay. So remember back to your criminal procedure days, what seems strange about that to you? Uh, is one of them contain the elements of the other? I believe all of them contain the elements. They're like the, the lower two, the third degree murder and the second degree manslaughter, at first glance, I think are lesser included crimes. Mm, so true. there was this whole thing, at least I saw it on Twitter, um, which is not real life. But everybody was confused about, well, wait a minute, isn't, doesn't this violate the double jeopardy clause? Mm-hmm. So I did some digging. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's first let's define uh, murder in the second degree that's basically felony murder mm-hmm. that's he was in the commission of a felony which was the the aggravated battery of George Floyd I don't think it's actually aggravated battery but for an example there was a felony going on and during the commission of that felony someone died someone died that's that's murder in the second degree unintentional murder mm-hmm. in the second degree murder in the third degree is pretty much depraved heart murder like you were doing something so, like so bad that you would, you should expect someone that someone to die from those actions. Like to, like the the example I always use is you drop a bowling ball off a highway, mm-hmm. or oh like off or in front bridge. of a sidewalk off yeah. a bridge near a sidewalk, and then manslaughter is pretty much the that's the garden variety definition of manslaughter in the Minnesota statutes. So these are all uh, Minnesota statutes. Uh, chapter 609 between like 19 and uh uh yeah 19 200 and 205 if anybody wants to go look then if you look at minnesota minnesota statute section 60 uh 631.14 verdict for a lesser included offense the last line of the statute says in all the cases the defendant may be found guilty of any offense necessarily included in that offense which the defendant is charged in the indictment or complaint meaning that when you're charged and uh, and found guilty you can be uh, convicted of multiple lesser included crimes but the sentence then would have to be um, you'd have to be sentenced on the highest one that you were guilty of before you know to, just to avoid the double jeopardy clause and then uh, I think that preserves anything that happens on appeal. So let's say on appeal, the the second degree murder, the felony murder gets thrown out. Mm-hmm. Then you've still got two other guilty charges or guilty convictions on which you have to then, he could then serve time. So that's mm-hmm. apparently, um, at least my thought is that's why they do it like that. Not, not right. just go for one. It's like there's multiple that you'd have to throw out on appeal. Mm-hmm. So that's my long-winded uh, take on the whole Derek Chauvin case. Interesting. Well, I know more now than I did beforehand because I, again, have not been following it as closely yeah, as I should. can't divide by zero. Yeah, I know. It's been bad. All right. So you ready to talk about Greer v. U.S.? Yes. So when was this heard, Bill? April 20th. Well, when was it heard? Yeah, April 20th. Yeah, that was just yeah. the hearing so far. So Greer versus the U.S. Should we start with the... I think we should start with the issues because the facts of it are actually pretty long. Yeah. I'm going to start with the issue. Yeah, go ahead. All right. So the issue here is whether when a court is applying plain error review, an, an appealing court is applying plain error review based on an intervening United States Supreme Court decision of Rahif versus United States whether a circuit court of appeals may review matters outside of the trial record to determine whether the error affected a defendant's substantial rights or impacted the fairness, integrity, or public reputation of the trial. That's a mouthful. Yes, it is. 
So I think there are a couple things we need to break down there. First of all, what is plain error? So plain error is a special type of review that allows the appellate court to review a decision that is so at odds with the law, it is not necessary for the appellant to have preserved the error for appeal by raising an objection to the conduct at trial. So basically what you're saying is the attorney on the other side during the origin, during the, the lower case doesn't ha- that didn't need to raise an objection to this issue just on its face. This is, is such a big error that we, the appellate court, need to address it. A legal error, yeah. So not a factual one, it's a legal error. Okay. Yep. And that applies to this case because Gregory Greer was convicted in 2018. And the legal issue that he's raising now didn't come up until 2019, which I'll, I'll get into a little bit more detail. So August 2017, Gregory Greer is a approached by some police officers who are conducting a prostitution investigation at a hotel in Jacksonville, Florida. Florida's going to play a part later, too. Um, and they noticed that Greer was acting a little bit weird and, you know, tugging at something near the back of his belt line. And so the officers said they were going to pat him down because they have that right to pat down people that might have a weapon. And uh, he ran away down the stairwell, and then the police later found a stolen Colt 45 at the bottom of that same stairwell. So they tracked him down, and they charged him under 18 U.S.C. Section 922, which is the Federal Felon in Possession Statute, which says that essentially if you're a felon, you can't possess a weapon, firearm. Um, But then in 2019, so a year after he was convicted, the Rahif, I'm not saying that right. How do you say it? Rahif? Uh, yeah, that one. Rahif case yeah. came out of the Supreme Court, and it held that 18 U.S.C. section 922 of the federal statute making it a crime for convicted uh, felons to possess a firearm applies only to people who know that they're felons at the time that they possess the firearm. So it specified the mens rea requirement. You have to know that you are a felon and you're not supposed to have the firearm at the time. Right. And this didn't exist at the original time where uh, Greer was convicted. So when Greer was convicted, there was no factual finding of that mens rea element. Correct. So then he appealed um, on that ground, essentially, that he just didn't have that opportunity at the time. Um, And the jury wasn't presented with that element of the crime either or any evidence of whether or not he had knowledge. And so um, this was appealed to the 11th Circuit. And the 11th Circuit upheld Greer's conviction after looking beyond the trial record to the pre-sentence investigation report, which stated that Greer had been um, had five felony convictions prior to this one, uh, and that he had served longer than a year in prison. So the 11th Circuit concluded that Greer didn't suffer any prejudice when he was convicted by a jury because even though they hadn't been instructed of the government's obligation to prove that Greer knew he was a felony, it seemed pretty obvious that Greer knew he was a felon. Right. Hence the running. That too. Hence the running and the leaving behind the gun in the stairwell. (laughs) But either way, Greer is now arguing that the pre-sentence investigation report, which wasn't presented to the jurors at the trial, is not in the trial record. So it's part of the... It's part of the. I thought it was part of the trial record, but not part of the the facts that go to the jury. Well, what's the difference here? So the trial record is all of the evidence that is presented at trial. The overall record, which most courts look at, you know, the greater record, mm-hmm. contains some stuff outside of that. But what Greer and his attorney are arguing is that Federal Rule of Criminal Procedure fifty two B, which governs plain error specifically holds that this type of inquiry relies solely on review of the trial record. And so they're trying to draw the line that the trial record is only the information that's presented to the jurors. And in this case, the pre-sentence report wasn't presented to the jurors because they heard the evidence, they convicted him, and that happened after the fact. And so the jurors wouldn't have known of the element or whether or not he met that element um, so that's that's where Greer comes right. in. Right, and then the 11th Circuit looked beyond that, and they shouldn't have done that. There's yeah. your error, and I think what their end of, what their and oral argument kind of brought this out 
what they think will happen if they rule in favor of Greer is they're just going to remand it back to the fact-finding court and say, hey, have a limited fact-finding session to figure out this one element. Even though most of us, with the facts that we've seen, know that he knew he was a felon, but it didn't go through the regular trial process. It didn't go for before a jury or another fact-finder. Yep. And I thought, I mean, I picked this case because I really like appellate procedure, and when I first read the issue, I thought, well, of course, they can't look outside the record. That doesn't make any sense. But here, like, the the trial record and the record is, like, so close, you know? It's like, where does that well, line... That's, that was the, uh, Breyer's question, right? He's yeah. like, what? I'm going to ask a really silly question. What's the trial record? Justice Breyer? Well, uh, morning. this question may seem naive and simple-minded, but I don't mean it to be. What's the trial record? Yes, Your Honor. It it will depend on what the specific claimed error here. And with respect oh, okay. That's, in other words, what you look at depends on the nature of the error. Yes, Your Honor. Okay. So here uh, we have, uh, uh, well, I understand what the error is. Substantial rights, were they affected? Uh, I'm on the appeals court. You have to give me some reason to think they were. Okay. What were they? Now you say, you only look at why? Why? Why only look at the PSA is in the record? Why? What, what's the rule? I mean, why? why, why uh, there could have been something that happened before the trial, an error. There could be something that happened in the middle of the trial to which it's highly relevant what happened before the trial. There could be something on the list of witnesses. There could be a limitation on what's going to be asked. Uh, in uh, the limitation having been worked out by counsel or having been worked out with the judge uh, before the jury was impaneled. I mean, the possibilities are endless. So where does this idea come from? You can only look to certain things, at least where we're, we don't have to go beyond saying the record, the record, which, of which the PSA is part. Indeed, you could go to sentencing two minutes after the jury comes in with a guilty verdict. Same day. Within the hour? I mean, you know, it all depends. So so what's wrong with what I'm saying? That there is no rule. The only rule is uh, the defendant has to show that there's a reasonable likelihood that it did affect my substantial rights. And no, no appeals court's going to have a big hearing. Put it in the brief. I mean, I, I, in other words, I'm totally at sea as to why or how to draw some line. In some case, one thing. In some case, another is my instinct. But you explain this to me. Yeah. So what Breyer's getting at is if the 11th Circuit acted within their discretion. And there's so there, if you look at U.S. versus Ross and their application of the plain error standard, there's four prongs on which you need to be uh, to do the analysis. An error was committed, one. Two, the error was plain, which means it's obvious. Three, the error must affect the defendant's substantial rights. And then four, the court must decide in the exercise of discretion if the courts of the lower court's error seriously affected fairness, integrity, and public reputation of judicial proceedings. Now, if that seems open-ended, I think that's on purpose. I think that's what Breyer's getting at is like, we're not, we don't want a bright line rule here. We want to be able to say, yep, this is definitely impacting fairness. Okay. This, this one really isn't, that's within the, the 11th circuit didn't abuse its discretion when they looked to the record outside of what the jurors saw, because look at this, 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 and this. So if I had to guess, I'm guessing that the court goes the way Justice Barrett outlines in her final two questions to the arguing attorney for the U.S., Let's pull that up. Justice Barrett. Mr. Snyder. So the Seventh Circuit and considering this question drew a line between, you know, trial record evidence or all the evidence in the record evidence as, as a way, as a proxy for what's reliable. So things like the PSR, for example, what would be wrong with that? I mean, that would exclude things like Justice Alito's book. But especially in these cases, the PSR is going to list the felonies. It's going to list the dates of the felonies. It's going to list the length of the sentences. Why does the government want more than that, especially in these cases? 
We're not asking for more than that, Your Honor. We think that a rule adopting that line um, would be sufficient to decide this case. There may be other cases in which you have things that aren't at issue here. So I, I mentioned the possibility of um, taking judicial notice of the um, state court documents reflecting a conviction or something along those lines. Um, to be clear, we don't think that the court needs to address those here, but we're just we don't want to foreclose those in a posture where they haven't been briefed and, and really aren't necessary to the decision. So you would be happy with a decision that said, you know, the the court, the court of appeals can go outside of just what the jury saw, what was before the jury and considered other record evidence like, for example, the PSR and just not say anything about whether it's possible at step four in another case, in a non-Rahafe error case for the court of appeals to go beyond that. Yes, we'd be happy with a decision that said that. And then just to go back to some of Justice Sotomayor's questions, do you agree in that circumstance if the government could point to the PSR that the defendant could cast doubt on the reliability of that evidence with things that may go outside of the record, like, for example, you know, mental capacity or other reasons why the defendant may not have known about it or maybe inaccuracies in the PSR? Yes, we're, we're fine with a decision that says that as well. Thank you. So I'm a little bit confused by what that would give the U.S. in this case. I can't quite understand if that would still remand it down to a fact finder, you know, or if the 11th Circuit Court would be able to look at the evidence in the pre-sentence record that says he had five other felonies and then... Who who determines whether or not he had the mental capacity, though, to understand that he had felonies? I don't know. I guess we could just go with Justice Breyer's suggestion and put it in a brief. And you submit it to the 11th Circuit, and the 11th Circuit makes the decision. I don't know, actually. Yeah, but otherwise what she's essentially saying here uh, and what the U.S. is agreeing to is that they're okay to accept looking outside of the record in this case but it doesn't need to be a bright line rule that they apply in the future yeah it's a limited holding in this case it's yeah you can look beyond the record but we're saying nothing about other cases we can still there might be cases where you shouldn't look past the record that was submitted to the jury in line with step four of that plain error where the court has to decide within its discretion uh whether this error seriously affected the fairness, integrity, or public reputation of the judicial proceedings. So they still have to do that analysis. Mm -hmm. there's, no, there's no shortcut within that step four, but the court's just saying, yeah, in this case, step four is satisfied. You're okay. Okay. I mean, so if we went through that analysis now, I think it's pretty obvious that there was the first two steps happen. So read those again. Yep. So the error was committed. Yep, yep, definitely an that. error. Because we'll, and the error was plain, as in it was obvious. So yes, right. it was obvious because the law changed. Yeah. So one and two, good. Three, the error must affect the defendant's substantial rights. And I think that's what Greer is really pushing: is that the jury verdict might have been different had. Well, I guess that's what he's trying to present: is that maybe he could have had evidence to present to the jury to dispute whether or not he had actual knowledge of being a felon. And, and to be honest, in this record, we don't know. Right. We, there could be evidence like, oh yeah, I was seeing a therapist, or I was I was seeing a mental health professional because right. I had bad memory issues or whatever. But there's other. What's presented in this case is just. You know, he ran from the cops. Mm -hmm. He dropped the revolver, mm -hmm. and he had five convictions. He had five convictions. I don't. Know, and on his last one, I think he'd only been out for like six months. Yeah, something like that. Not yeah. very long. Just, I think Sotomayor brought that up. Yeah. So very unlikely. And I think that's probably what the appellate court's analysis was: is look, there was error, um, and it's plain. But it's harmless. But on this record, yeah, there's no way this would have changed the jury's outcome because he had so many felonies and he had just gotten out of jail and the evidence yeah. shows he did you know no reasonable jury would believe that he didn't think he was a felon right and i guess that is tough because you're making a an assumption there mm -hmm. but I, I don't know appellate courts kind of get the right to understand what a reasonable jury would and would not do that courts one of generally do big yeah jobs um and then the fourth one is right whether or not this is yeah, does this hurt the public reputation of judicial proceedings? And I don't think so. 
Now, again, I think the appellate court usually gets this sort of discretion of understanding what would a reasonable jury do in this situation. With, yeah. If they had this extra evidence, what would they have done? Mm-hmm. So what's your prediction on the uh, on the outcome? I definitely know that it seemed to me none of the justices want to make some kind of bright, bright line rule regarding what is an inside and outside of the record. Um, again, record is such a intangible word when it comes to court hearings. I mean, you have the the trial record of the transcripts of what happened at trial, and that one exists. But once you reach the appellate level, like, there's not really a record anymore. It's just a agglomeration of documents mm-hmm. that have been put together by the attorneys. And it's not, it's not an official thing anymore. It's kind of whatever you throw it's in there. It's essentially a scrapbook. Yeah, of the transcripts and other information that, you know, could point to legal issues or, you know, the record grows and there's certainly things you need to look at that are outside of the trial record, especially when it's a legal question, like laws change all the time, like we need to look at the new law if you're saying that it changed. So I know that none of the justices seem to want to make a bright line rule about that because it'd be really, really difficult to carve out. Yep. And as for Greer, I I think he's kind of screwed. Yep. I would say that it, it makes sense, in my opinion, that the appellate court worked the way they did rather than remand it down for another fact finder to go through this one piece of evidence. It just seemed pretty obvious that this is not the type of case where it was questionable. There's an error, but it's a harmless error. Right. It's I just, think yeah. Justice Alito brought up a, a better situation um, in which the individual had been convicted of a felony like 20 years ago, and he wasn't even really clear that it was a felony because of the way it was done. Yep. And then, you know, he has possession of a firearm, and so it's a lot more questionable whether or not he knew that he was a, a felon. Mm-hmm. Um, but this isn't that case, and that's essentially what the lawyer said, is like, this is not that case. <laughs> right, and I think that's why they'll have the limited holding. Yeah. I'm saying, yeah, in, a, in this case, harmless error. Mm-hmm. But no other broad sweeping decisions here. Right. And especially because the attorney for the U.S. even says right out, yep, we're happy with that holding. We're not cool. asking for much. We're yeah. just saying that here the court acted properly. Yeah. Which they're like, oh, okay, not asking for much. You got it. That's, I, that's where I, I think it'll be unanimous for uh, the U.S. Yeah, I'd say so as well. Uh, I didn't get any sense of hesitation from any of the justices that they might go the other way. No, not so, even Breyer. No. No. Well, this is just another indicator that sometimes the cases that come before the Supreme Court are not super fancy and glamorous. No, they're kind of boring. Listening to this was really boring. I uh, I wish I had read up on it before listening, though, because, again, I spent so much time listening to it thinking, why the heck was the court looking outside of the record anyway? And then when you realized how they were looking outside the record, mm-hmm. just to another document that's... In the also, appellate record. In the record. Not in the trial yeah. record. I was like, oh, this is the dumbest thing ever. <laughs> yes. Yes. I was thinking the exact same thing on my way to stop and shop. Yeah. So, yeah, not as exciting as I wanted it to be. Sorry, Bill. But you picked the other case. I did. So that... And it's only slightly more exciting. Eh, I think it's appropriate. Yes. But before we move on to that, we'll take a short break and then we'll be back. We're back. All right. Trivia. I feel like this is how I've started it the past couple times. Bill. Yes. It was just Earth Day? Earth Day. Earth Day. Oh, my goodness. So good at this. April 22nd, Earth Day. Mm-hmm. So in um, reflection of that, do you know that in April, April 2nd, 14 years ago, 2007 was when the U.S. Supreme Court decided the case Massachusetts versus Environmental Protection Agency. I seem to remember a little bit about that. Do you remember what that case was about, I really don't. Do you remember who decided it? No. It's been so long. I really don't remember. It's 2007. Can you take a guess? Is it Scalia? No. (laughs) Come on. Is it? um, Crap. I don't know who it is. Do I get another guess? Mm-hmm. Can I get a hint? 
Um, was it Ruth? No, but I was going to say whoever it was isn't on the court anymore. Suter? No. I, uh, Good kiss. Um, it was Stevens. Oh. Yep. And what did Justice Stevens say? All right. So this issue came out because of the Clean Air Act. Okay. So, yep. This is all coming back to me. Keep going. A bunch of people were upset that the Clean Air Act wasn't, um, or that the EPA under the Clean Air Act wasn't stopping all of the emissions coming out of cars. And so they bring this case before the EPA and they're like, hey, EPA, you need to like fix all of this CO2 that's going into the environment. It's a Clean Air Act. And the EPA said, Haha, that's not our job. So the Clean Air Act says that the EPA administrator shall by regulation prescribe and from time to time revise in accordance with the provisions of this section standards applicable to the emission of any air pollutant from any class or classes of new motor vehicles or new motor vehicle engines, which in his judgment cause or contribute to air pollution, which may reasonably be anticipated to endanger public health or welfare. So the question was, is CO2 an air pollutant? And the court said? Yes. Yeah. So they did say yes, but that was the EPA's contention was, hey, 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 CO2, it's totally normal. You breathe it out of your mouth every day. Like, it's not our job to regulate CO2. But the court said, yeah, actually, it is your job. And the EPA was also fighting a little bit for more time to collect evidence that CO2 and other things coming out of your cars were negatively impacting global warming. Um, And the court said there, no, you don't need any more time. It's written in the Clean Air Act. These things that we know to be an endangerment to public health or welfare, you have to regulate. And the court went back to a whole bunch of studies that had been conducted and um, started by Congress that looked at whether or not CO2 contributed to global warming and its effects. And they all kind of pointed to, yeah, it does. So the court was like, nah, we're not buying this. You don't need more time to do studies. You have plenty of studies that say it's bad and it is an air pollutant under the Clean Air Act. Therefore, it's your job to take care of it. So it was an interesting case because it was the state of Massachusetts and a couple other states joined in as well suing the EPA on behalf of essentially the entire nation. Wasn't this a standing case? There was a lot of standing questions because why does Massachusetts have the right to bring this case when it's impacting all of the U.S.? And this is, oh, this is the one where since the state governments ceded their overall sovereignty to the federal government, they get to, they have a, um, they have standing to sue the U.S. government for certain issues. And this kind of started off a lot of um, environmental protection uh, cases because once they established this special type of standing, um, it opened the door for, you know, the Sierra Club and all of these other agencies that are acting on behalf of their state or on behalf of, you know, people in an area for environmental protection Uh, They say, look, we can't control this. The only people who can control this is the EPA because it's their duty and power to do that. So since we're giving up that right to you, we're going to tell you when you're not doing your job. Yeah, I mean, that made I remember that making sense back in con law. Con law? Was it con law? Yeah, the first time the first time we had this was con law. I'm assuming you had more of this case. Environmental. Environmental. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Did, did Scalia sign on to this opinion? He did not. I'm shocked. Well, his reasoning, I didn't look back at the full dissent, but his reasoning was that the Clean Air Act itself was not intended to carve out um, CO2. Mm-hmm. And that the way that they read it, it just didn't correlate with the way he would read it and the intentions of Congress at the time it was written. Okay. So that was his contention. And then the other person to dissent was um, Roberts wrote a dissent. I don't remember exactly what he wrote his dissent on, but um, yeah, it was a 5-4 decision to written dissents. Okay. Yep, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Fun. Fun fact. And now, speaking of Earth Day and states getting the right to sue, although this isn't exactly the, it's not the, the same type of test, but we are talking about Florida versus Georgia, which is another environmental-ish case. It is, yeah. So this is a really interesting case because you don't see a whole lot of these. This is the Supreme Court's 
original jurisdiction, Mm -hmm. meaning that when a state sues another state, there's no other place for them to go other than the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. So I want to hear a country song about this case. From Florida Georgia Line. From from Florida Georgia Line in the (laughs) near future. And I want them to name, uh, they have an old camp whiskey. They have like a line of whiskey that they do. It's all Mm -hmm. flavored whiskey or whatever. I want them to name three of their whiskeys after these three rivers that are involved in this case. So there's... And of course, donate all proceeds to the oyster farms in Florida. Yeah, that too. Anyway, <laughs> so uh, so there are... Get a load of these names. There are three rivers. It's the... In question, it's the Apalachola, Chattahoochee, and Flint River Basin. It's just... Appalachia? Appal... Appalachola. A, it's Appalachian is, is like the first part of the word. Appalachian. So C-H-I-Cola. Appalachia. Oh, you're right. I've just been reading it Appalachia. <laughs> but oh. it's probably not. Well, um, anyway, so the river starts in Georgia, then goes through Alabama, then goes into Florida. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, the issue is water rights. Water rights have been a big problem for way before this country came to be. Water has always been a very uh, valuable commodity. So Florida's contention is, Georgia, you're taking too much of the water from this river, mm-hmm. and it's negatively impacting us. The There are two main areas where Florida said, hey, there's a wrong here. One was in the oyster, the local oyster market in Florida, right. and the other was in the wildlife area. That you're negatively impacting our native species in Florida. Mm-hmm. So, originally, this came up to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court appointed a special master that kind of was charged with giving a recommendation on the case. Which, by the way, sounds like the greatest job title of all time. I'm, I want to be an appointed special I'm, master. I'm a special master. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. It's like, I don't even know how you get to be one of those. I should look it up later. But I think a judge appoints you. I don't know if it has to be. I think it was a judge. Yeah. They appointed a judge to be special master of the case. Oh, right, right. But I think it's a, it's like an appointed position for a case. Like, we yeah. want you to oversee this and you're, see if the yeah, law is being applied properly. You're the guy. Right. Anyway. Um, so they appointed a special master, mm-hmm. put together a report, and basically recommended that it be dismissed outright. Like, don't even bother hearing the, the case. Uh, Florida hasn't shown a clear by clear and convincing evidence that there's been any wrongdoing here. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a 5-4 dissent, this is a couple decision. years ago, uh, in a 5-4 decision, uh, they decided, no, they don't need to show a clear and convincing evidence at this stage. They just need to show that there could be an actual harm. Right. And I'm oversimplifying it, but that's basically what they said. So they went I mean, back. That kind of goes to anytime you bring a case, like you as the plaintiff bringing a case, you don't need to have actual proof. You just need to have facts on the record that show you could prove, right? In the sense, that in, if you go to trial, exactly. So yeah. that's pretty much what happened here. Then they took a little more, a little more time to pull together their story, pull they together had a the second evidence. Second special master, right? Yes. Well, the original special master retired. Mm-hmm. Then they have a new special master who basically said the same thing. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, yeah, now we've seen all the evidence, and I still recommend that you dismiss this case because Florida still hasn't shown anything. Mm-hmm. So went before the Supreme Court. They had argument. The Here's what happened with the oyster market. Florida is basically saying, Georgia, you consumed way too much water. Right. That increased the solidity, salinity, of the water saltiness yeah yeah saltiness so if you think about it right you're taking out water and if you, and in a salt water population you're just you're what's the opposite of dilution concentration yeah you're increasing the concentration of salt in your water and that's making it non habitable for oysters mm-hmm. so georgia said hey that's not necessarily true i mean you you won, Florida. You mismanaged your oyster fisheries. Mm-hmm. You allowed them to overfish them like crazy. You also weren't reshelling the basins. By reshelling, it's you have to. I think you throw back your spent shells into a certain area, and it helps the young oysters grow, or they they assume those shells, or increases oyster biomass. Mm-hmm. Uh, Florida wasn't doing that either. Not at the, the levels that were required. So Georgia's like, there's a bunch of other stuff. That could be that causing. Could have, that could be causing this. And Florida, you're alleging that 
this is the only reason why we don't have oysters to fish. This is a bizarre argument anyway. I understand the concentrating of salt, but it's not like they're pulling out pure water and leaving the salt behind? Like, how would they do that? Yeah, I they don't... must pull the water and then treat well, it. I know. Well, I think the river upstream is fresh water. Mm-hmm. Once it gets down into... Oh, so they're pulling fresh water and then, okay. Yeah, there's just less fresh water being added to that mix. So it's probably brackish water that's now a lot more salty. I don't Got know. It. The other thing, which was really interesting, was the suggested remedy of Georgia like use, using less water... Mm-hmm would have marginally increased the oyster population. Mm. It would have barely done anything. Yep. So they're like, hey, doubt this would do anything. Right. And so in order for the courts to regulate one state's access to water over another state's access to water requires equal apportionment, or they're, they're supposed to have equal apportionment. So it's a question of, can we touch this equal apportionment? And that draws in a pretty heavy burden of evidence yeah what's the clear and convincing yeah you have to have um injury of serious magnitude Mm -hmm. and there's two factors yeah so the first one is uh actual injury of serious magnitude caused by georgia's upstream water consumption and the second prong is that the benefits to florida of a court order would substantially outweigh the harm. And so here, the court really only needed to look at the first one because there was just not enough evidence to show that Georgia's actions were causing a serious magnitude of problems to Florida's oysteries. Um, Oysters, right? Oyster fisheries. Thank you. And uh, so they didn't even need to really go to prong two, which was the benefit going to outweigh it. But as Bill just said, no, it's definitely not. (laughs) It's barely going to help the oyster fisheries. Certainly certainly not clear and convincing that it's going to help. Yeah. So that was was just the oyster fisheries. There's also the the weaker, even weaker case was with the Florida wildlife Mm -hmm. that apparently um, the Florida brought up an expert that said, yeah, if there's less fresh water, this is what could happen. They didn't present any evidence of any species actually being impacted by this lack of water. And separate reports actually stated, yeah, so those populations have remained stagnant and some of them are actually growing. Mm -hmm. So I don't even know why Florida brought that argument. But their wildlife uh, argument was even weaker than their oyster argument. So that failed as well. Right. And uh, so I think you mentioned, maybe you didn't mention this, Barrett wrote this opinion? Yeah, Barrett wrote this opinion. Yeah, but did you say that? To you earlier, yes. All right. But so Barrett wrote this opinion. It was unanimous. um, And she sums it up pretty simply. Like she says, the fundamental problem with this evidence, a problem that pervades Florida's submission in this case, is that it establishes at most that increased salinity and predation contribute to the collapse, not that Georgia's overconsumption caused the increased salinity and predation. So, yes, Florida, you have plenty of evidence that your oysteries are not doing well, but you have no evidence to suggest that Georgia's at fault for that, especially when there is contrary evidence that you're not taking care of these fisheries yourself. So how are we supposed to determine that it's Georgia's fault when it could be a multitude of things that you're just doing wrong <laughs> in your own fisheries? Yep. I thought that, I thought that was interesting. I was just like, it's very, it seems so obvious. Mm-hmm. And I think that's probably because Barrett's a halfway decent writer. Yeah, she's very clear. Very clear. And to me, this is, oh, yeah, this is obvious. Clearly, Florida had no case here. Mm -hmm. But just fun. This this is probably the first case I've read that's been within the court's original jurisdiction. Oh, true. Yeah, good point. Yeah. So. Same. Fun to see them almost as a fact finder, Mm -hmm. which is rarely ever the case. They're always in appellate court. Right. Yes. So, um, but on a, a side note, <laughs> I watched a documentary recently, Bill. You don't watch documentaries. What are you talking about? All the time. So I watched Seaspiracy and I, I don't remember which streaming service it's on, but it's quite good, except prepare yourself to never want to eat fish again because that was the ultimate outcome. And that is why next month I am not going to be eating fish. And meat too? Well, yeah, I'm going to give it all up for one month, but I, I don't see my consumption of fish increasing um, much. I'm, I'm not a huge fish fan anyway, except fish food. I love Ben and Jerry's fish food. 
I will eat that till the end of time. But fish from the sea uh, doesn't mean much to me. Um, And after watching this documentary, I was like, nope. And then when, you know, this case brings up how Florida is not maintaining and is overfishing its own oyster fisheries, it's all I could think of was that documentary. And I'm like, oh, my God, it's ruining everything. Well, I'm not going to watch it because I plan on continuing to eat fish. That's a good idea. Yes. Definitely don't watch it if you plan on continuing to eat fish. And I do. Yeah, whatever. But it was quite good otherwise. So, since we have some extra time, I think this would be a good point to discuss a case that recently came out, the opinion came out, and we discussed the hearing back when it came out earlier this year. Yep, so this was AMG Capital versus FTC. Mm-hmm. So, those, oh, go ahead. So, we recorded this episode, but Venetia made some mistakes in the early days of Moda Scotus and lost some of the audio destroyed some of the audio recordings and to be be fair to venetia we also i i didn't know what i was doing i mean Mm -hmm. i still don't know what i'm doing but i i probably couldn't speak then either right yeah it it didn't come out great anyway but it was a fun case because we in preparation for it watched the dirty money episode which featured uh the defendant scott lebrec oh i forgot what his name is um scott tucker scott tucker scott tucker Right. He was this payday loan magnet who used uh, Native American reservations and immunity to avoid certain financial regulations and make a crap ton of money off of payday loans. So the question before the court back in January, I believe it was, it was mid-January they argued this, was um, there was a, the FTC ordered Scott Tucker to pay um, several billion dollars as a in uh, as a remedy for his deceptive uh, payday loan scheme. Then the way the mechanism they used to get the money was an injunction. And for those of you who know what an injunction is, that's a strange way to get money. An injunction is usually saying, "Hey, Bill, you're enjoined from." driving your car yes you're stopped you're stopped yeah you're stopped from doing something or you're forced to report somewhere you're you're stopped from doing something or you're forced to do something but it's not typically when there's damages it's no you pay this Mm -hmm. it you wouldn't get money damages out of injunction right the injunctive relief is an equitable type of relief was where the question comes in because how much discretion does a court have in determining if you know, damages should be part of that equitable relief. Mm-hmm. Whereas if the FTC, this is basically a shortcut the FTC has been using for years. Mm-hmm. Now the question is, and I think Kavanaugh was the one who said it during oral argument. And Kavanaugh basically said, well, hey, why don't you just, there's a mechanism for you to get damages. It's in the same statute. Why don't you just do that? Mm-hmm. And I think what it was is a lot more work. Let me put the question a different way. What incentive does the commission have today 
to use Section 19. The, the Commission has the incentives that I've discussed, which are if it wishes to engage in its own fact-finding and use uh, and draw its own legal conclusions to address yes, it, novel conduct. Yes, but it's so terribly difficult, um, and Section 13 is so comparatively easy. What incentive remains to do that? I know it can, but why would it? Just as it can come up with rules defining what unfair trade practices are, but, but chooses not to do so. So it was Gorsuch, not Kavanaugh, but the attorney didn't really hide that either. They're like, look, when we need a quick turnaround of results, we kind of just fall back on this injunctive relief issue rather than going through the process of doing all the damages stuff. And I think right then and there is when the court was like, that we don't like that <laughs> no they're like there's an actual mechanism for you to do it do it right i think then the i think the judgment will probably be less because they'll have to go through certain things and certain things won't fit all the criteria mm -hmm. so scott tucker will still owe money scott tucker i don't know if he's still if he's in jail or whatever but he's still on the hook right. he just you you can't be on the hook that way right it wasn't proper for the ftc to do it that way even though they've been doing it that way in the past it's it's not the proper mechanism right um but it was funny to hear the argument because amy coney barrett even brings up that you know look she's talking to the um to the ftc attorney she's talking to the advocate yeah uh and she says uh it's hard for me to feel bad for your client when he's the subject of a episode of dirty money <laughs> where they talk about all of the ways that he purposely went around and tried to swindle people out of money um should i really be you know ruling in your favor in this sort of case or should i have any sympathy for your client and in turn is just kind of like well no but the point is, this is not the proper procedure for seeking damages. Yeah, that's not what is at issue here. Right. Um, but it was just funny. So this is actually in Dirty Money. It is season one, episode two, called Payday. Yeah, that was a fun one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was a good episode. I recommend it. Yeah, you get to see him, like, sweating bullets on his Peloton while they're wheeling up his... All of his cars. All of his race cars. Surprised up, cars. Yeah, scuffing them on the on the pavement in the mulch on the way up and shipping them away. Yeah. Because he couldn't pay all like $1.6 or something like that. Yep. Fun stuff. Yeah. But do you remember how we thought the court was going to rule? I do. I will pull it up. And we predicted a either an 8-1 or unanimous ruling. Oh, who was the one? We were, we were concerned about thomas and only because thomas asked a softball question to the government mm -hmm. and the government's like oh you have a great question justice thomas mm -hmm. but yeah even so we were like eh, i'm not convinced that he's going to go with the government anyway it looks like everybody's going to go to uh amg capital right so we were right interesting did you see any uh news coverage of this i didn't see anything but i would imagine there must be someone out there who wrote about it because again it was a Netflix episode of Dirty Money um, where the headline I can picture in my head um, Scott Tucker gets away without <laughs> owing damages to the FTC <laughs> or something. No, I didn't see that. I, I, mostly it's been legal sources that I saw the um, uh, I saw coverage. Mm -hmm. Like the, the worst thing I saw was uh, AMG versus FTC ends FTC practice of of using injunctions. To right. Which makes sense because in the end, he still lost his case. Like he's definitely guilty of the crimes that he committed. Um, but it's just that the FTC can't keep using this loophole to recover damages. Yeah. Like, OK, here's one. Uh, Supreme Court ruling will hurt FTC's ability to fight for consumers. Yeah, that's not true at all. They have a mechanism fully established. They just choose not to use it because it's yes. much faster to seek an injunction. Yes. And there's a picture of a, of a crying lady holding her credit card. Oh. Yeah. Like, <laughs> oh, no, I've been the victim of fraud. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm not, I'm not too concerned. Nah, I don't feel bad either. They knew that they weren't doing the right protocol anyway, so. And if they believe this is such a serious issue, this is an area ripe for... Um, new law that allows them for a quicker that allows for a quicker way to get money out of you know if they if they really want a quick way to change the law 
Yeah, I suppose. Again, I, I saw no issue with the law that they had. I didn't either. Um, so I don't think that's going to happen either. But Granted, it, I don't work at the FTC. Maybe there's lots and lots of more paperwork. Yeah, but I would imagine there must be because, again, the idea was they wanted to get this money and then disperse it and distribute it to all the people who were harmed. Like, that's a lot of paperwork in itself. Like, there's going to be paperwork, so don't Duh. Don't, don't come at me about yeah, that. Yeah, I, again, I don't have sympathy, no. but I can understand. Yeah. But, but yeah. yeah. That's well, this was, this was a shorter episode, but next time we have two First Amendment cases being argued in front of the Supreme Court. Are you saying that's going to be a longer episode? I'm so excited. I probably will talk so much. It has to be. Oh, God. I can only cut so much, Bill. Yeah, but yeah, you're going to have to cut a lot of it. All right. Well, either way, this was a good one because I thought it was on point with environmental stuff, even though it did not actually help the fisheries at all. And the oyster fisheries are still suffering and devastated. And uh, probably Georgia is taking too much water, but not in a way that's impacting the fisheries. Honestly, this was a huge loss for the environment. Yeah, all, the, all of that. To, yeah, it was applicable. <laughs> and all of that to say happy Earth Day. Happy Earth Day. All right. Well, thanks, Bill. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. And we'll talk to you next week. Don't forget that you can send us comments or questions at our email address, moduscotus at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter and on Instagram. Again, moduscotus is our handle. Talk to you later. Bye. Baby, you a song. You make me want to roll my windows down and cruise. Oh my god, she's in the South Georgia water.